Hi, and welcome to I Love Edmonton Real Estate. My name is Jason Scott, and my guest today is Craig Pilgrim of Remax in St. Albert, which is just north of Edmonton. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. So, Craig, you do a lot of business in St. Albert. How did you uh, originally become a realtor in this uh, bedroom community of Edmonton? I started in St. Albert uh, about five years ago, more specifically. I was living in Edmonton at the time, and my career started in Edmonton. I was certainly serving St. Albert. And once my wife and I moved back to St. Albert, because we're both originally from this area, that sort of got my foot stuck in and made sure I was working my way into getting more market share in St. Albert. Right. Okay. So about five years ago. Okay. And how long have you been a realtor for? 12 years. And what got you into real estate? What did you do in your previous life? I've had a long previous life before that. To keep a long story very short, I actually had uh, in- had suggested to my folks back when I was finishing high school that I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I had suggested to them at that time that uh, real estate was where I was going to go. And it was met with some very disapproving looks and some encouragement to go to university. So that's what I wound up doing actually was going to university, got a degree in lab medicine, parlayed that into working stateside in the Silicon Valley, in the blood industry, the US blood industry, it's actually an industry down there. Then segued that into uh, working in the oil and gas industry here. And then from there made the logical next step, which was to move into real estate. Because <laughs> why not? Does? That's right. That's what everybody does, isn't it? <laughs> That's funny. So, <laughs> so you're one of those people who actually did know what they wanted to do when they grew up. It just took like a decade to get there, kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It took over a decade to get there, and it was one of those things where, when I originally got licensed and started doing, I thought, "Geez, I sure missed a whole lot of time. I could have been doing this already." But then I quickly realized that it was all of those experiences, you know, leaving university with a degree in lab medicine, but then putting that into a business that was completely unexpected and learning how businesses operate all the way through oil and gas and sort of climbing those ladders that gave me the experience I have to do my business the way I do it today. So had I gone into real estate back then, I wouldn't probably have lasted. Really? Yeah. Why do you think that is? I would have been so ill-prepared for the realities of being self-employed and doing something like real estate. I mean, let's face it, you're in the same boat. You and I wake up every single day unemployed. And that is a really hard thing to get your brain around. And most people can't get their brains around that. And coming straight out of high school, yeah, I mean, to wake up unemployed and living on your parents' roof is one thing. <laughs> to wake up unemployed and have to go find something to to become employed is nothing entirely. So, yeah. 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 Okay, great. When did you know that real estate was the right business for you? After I did my first transaction. And there's a backstory there. Tell me the backstory. So the backstory is I was working for an oil and gas service company, like we just spoke about. And it was a great position, and it was an excellent salary and benefits. And I hated every second of it. I was at the office every morning at 5.30, getting all the work done that needed to be done. That's awesome. But I just hated it. I hated working for somebody else. I hated the fact that I had to be somewhere at a certain time, uh, all of the time. I just, that wasn't for me. And I had tossed out the idea to my wife. I was miserable. And I said, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And she said, we'll figure something out. And I said, I did. I think I'm going to be a mortgage broker. And she said, why a mortgage broker? And I said, I have no idea. It just sounds like a good idea. (laughs) Well, we'll have to compare notes to see who made the right choice. That's absolutely right. Because then she said, she said, well, if you thought of mortgage broker, why don't you be a realtor? 
and I thought like far too many consumers do based on sort of that image that it conjures and my parents from from 10 years prior and I thought no no I don't want to be one of those guys and so we had more conversations and I thought why not why not it, it offers all of those things that I hate about the life I'm in now it gives me the freedom at least that's what I perceived it gives me the freedom it gives me all of these things that I don't like about what I'm doing now mm-hmm. the only unknown is the dollars and cents I could starve to death or I'd have to be one of those guys and so the conversation that I had with my wife was, I'll go ahead and do it. Um, she was going back to school at the time, and we didn't have any children, so I wasn't going to see her anyway. So I thought, well, if you're back in school, I might as well be in school as well. Both get our schooling done at the same time. We both still had full-time jobs. And then I would do at least one deal. And if I got into the industry and I learned that I had to be one of those guys to be successful in this business, I would do one deal recoup my costs and figure out something else okay and just before you go on when you say those guys listeners can't pick up the body language but what do you mean by those guys those guys is the negative impression that consumers who have had a less than stellar experience with an industry member have right and that's the brush with which they paint the whole industry so there's this belief that you have to be unscrupulous um, dishonest to be successful in this business. And as you know, because you're a licensed industry member as well, that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm sure there's one or two guys and gals over the years that, you know, one drop of pee in a pool and there's pee in the pool. Right. So I learned quickly, of course, that the industry is full of absolute professionals with nothing but the best ethics and standards and morals. And I did my first deal. And as soon as I did my first deal, I thought, this is awesome. This is exactly what I want to do. I don't know what I'll ever earn at it. I certainly won't ever become a, a millionaire at it because that's not my goal. That was never my goal. My goal was to have the life that I want to have in terms of all things that matter. When it was time to have a family, when it was time to have my time, when it was time to have vacation and not be beholden to somebody else's idea of what a workday looks like. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the dollars and cents is the other half of the equation. And, and as long as my kids are fed and my wife is happy and my mortgage is paid, I think I'm being successful. Right. And that's how I measure it. So. Right. Okay. So that was the backstory to the first deal. What was the first deal? I'm sure you remember all the ins and outs of it. Oh, gosh. My very, very, very first deal, I was working, I was being mentored by an agent, fairly experienced agent. And it was, geez, had to be close to midnight, absolutely pouring rain. She smoked like a steam engine. It was absolutely crazy how much she smoked. And we got to the appointment probably a half an hour early. And she was trying to coach me on what was going to happen and what was going to be said and what was going to be done and how it was going to go. Because this is back in the day when the offers were written on paper and you actually went to the home seller's home and got invited into their kitchen table. And there were rules written and unwritten that were to be followed in terms of presenting the offer. And I basically was a shadow. I was a tag along. And it was incredibly uncomfortable. I stunk of an ashtray. (laughs) (laughs) And all I remember, and I won't say the agent's names because they're still in the industry, but I remember that they basically argued at the client's table. In front of the clients. In front of both, in front of the sellers, myself, and the agent with whom I was working, and the agent representing the seller. Because they both had very strong personalities. They both believed things should be done a certain way to the point where the seller's agent 
reached in front of me to grab the offer from the agent who we were working with, representative buyer, and tried to grab the documents from her. And she stopped short of wrapping his knuckles and said, I'll hand you the offer when I'm done explaining it to you and your client. And that set the stage for my very first deal. So it's a how not to do things. <laughs> it was exactly that. It was an exactly, I will never do any of the things that those two idiots just did in front of the client. Because, I mean, I remember the experience vividly. It worked out very, very well for our clients. They're actually still in the home. 12 years later, but I learned everything not to do. And I learned right away how caustic egos are and how they have no place in our industry. And those two particular individuals, still professional agents, but the two of them were like oil and water and it was their way or the highway. And they were both trying to execute that at the seller's kitchen table. And I was sitting here going, Holy crap. <laughs> I should say something. I shouldn't say anything. <laughs> Can I leave now? Can I go now? <laughs> Hell, I'm going to start smoking. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But the deal closed and everyone was happy in the end. Everyone was still happy in the end and the clients are still there. Yeah. Happy as can be. What was the seller's reaction to all of this? I mean, you were uncomfortable. How were they I acting? have no idea. I was so uncomfortable. I was, you know, when you get really uncomfortable or scared or, or any of those things, you sort of get tunnel vision and the whole world kind of goes dark and quiet around you. <laughs> I swear that's what happened. It was like fight or flight without the adrenaline. I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> so, so, so that was my first one. Right. So, and obviously it wasn't that traumatic because there was a second one and there's there's many more. And many since. more thereafter. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay, Craig, that's a good buying story, <laughs> your first experience and, you know, getting a, a fist fight almost at the uh, kitchen table, as it were. Can you uh, tell us an uh, interesting story on the selling side of things? Because presumably that's about half of your business. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's almost year over year, exactly half my business. And uh, I guess the, probably the, the most shocking story that comes to mind is from about, it's about four years ago, I guess. I was invited into a person's home. This person was separated and was had asked me to come over to advise them on how to get their home ready for sale. And so we got to the home, it was in an older neighborhood, we got to the home and it was sort of your not unexpected signs of deferred maintenance, you know, overgrown shrubs, this type of thing, things that you'd expect from people that are probably having a difficult time in their life, right? Just other things are way more important than cutting the grass and trimming the bushes. So no big surprise, went into the home, a little bit of disarray, but again, nothing horrible. Some renovations had been started, but not quite finished. Again, not a surprise. And we get into the kitchen and there's a dog and then I meet with the client. And so we talk about kind of plans and what things are happening and what the timelines are and, and the pressures and so on and so forth. And then this person uh, begins to give me a tour of the home. So we're going through the home and go through the main level and it was pretty rough. Um, not, you know, abused by tenants who don't give a rip rough, but certainly pretty rough. And we got downstairs and it was reasonably full of things, um, the trappings of life. And there were these rocks, I'll call them rocks, all over the basement floor. I was stepping on them. And I had left my shoes on because she had suggested that I leave my shoes on. And I was walking through and I couldn't figure out why there was rocks in the basement. Well, they weren't rocks. It was dog feces. Uh. Dried up. 
uh-huh. dog feces. And of course, they weren't all rocks. Once I became aware that they weren't rocks, there was also not so dried up that I had to be mindful of and not step in. So then it became clear that this person was letting the dog use the basement instead of the backyard and never tending to the dog's disposal of its kibbles. And we went back upstairs and they proceeded to ask me again, so what should we do to get the home ready for sale? I've got that extra hardwood floor in the living room. You can see where I started that and I've got this and that and the other thing. And I said to the person, I'm going to be completely honest and straightforward with you because that's how I do all of my business. And if you don't like the advice, I completely understand. But my advice would be to get the things that that you're going to keep because you've indicated that you're already moving out anyhow and not spend a nickel on anything in your home because it does require so much work that the best way to market your home would be on an as-is basis. You're going to get the most amount of money for it if you can present it to a prospective buyer as a what we call a flip opportunity in the business or maybe somebody who wants a renovation project or even perhaps a first-timer who needs the sweat equity. That didn't go very well. I did not get that listing. I don't ever know what happened. But that was probably one of the worst seller experiences I had in terms of a property and the condition of the property. It must have smelled absolutely horrifying. Well, (laughs) that was the interesting thing is it didn't stink the way you would expect it to stink. It didn't stink like Uh uh-oh, I've stepped in something. It just didn't smell like that. I mean, the house, I'm sure it had a smell of some sort, but it certainly wasn't that. And as I said, you know, we were stepping in all these, air quotes, rocks in the basement. It was dried up, hard as a rock, dog feces. Like, was it, like, everywhere? It was And how deep? It was basically a layer deep. You could step in spots where you weren't stepping on it, but that required actually looking at the floor and actually placing your feet strategically around it. In other words, you were less likely or less likely to find bare concrete than you were to not step on these rocks. And they were rocks. They didn't even crumble underfoot. So I don't know I don't know what that dog ate. I don't know what the hell they did with the temperature in that house. But I honestly thought I was walking on gravel until I realized it was Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that was actually one of two that same that same summer isn't it funny how you get streaks like that where you'll Absolutely. see crazy situations once or twice in a row? Absolutely. The second one wasn't nearly as bad or maybe so I was prepared for it, but this particular person had a Rubbermaid tub in front of the stove in the kitchen with newspaper. And that was where the dog went to the bathroom. And I, I remember thinking, I don't know why you can't see the problem with this picture. It's, I don't know if it's, it's worse that you think it's okay that the dog does its business in the house or if it's worse that you think it's okay the dog does his business in your kitchen in mm-hmm. front of your stove so and those were on the same those were in the same month wow so crazy so craig tell me a little bit about you know the type of people who are your clients are they generally more first time home buyers or more established people who are moving up the property ladder my business tends to be built around more around people who are either moving up or moving down in that they're downsizing. So I don't, I do a fair amount of first time buyer work, but it's not my, the majority is probably the lesser of my business. Right. So mostly move up buyers. Okay. So when you're dealing with move up buyers, what sort of advice do you give them that, you know, they should be prepared for and they should be looking for uh, when they're going through the process? 
So probably the, the very first meeting that we have, the, the first two pieces of advice I give any client, because these people generally will have a home to sell as well. Most people nowadays, as you know, aren't equipped or don't have the advice to keep the home that they're moving up from as part of any kind of rental portfolio. So they need one to get to the other. So they have a sale as well as a purchase. And so the, the advice I give them, and it's more about preparedness than it is actually advice, is number one, try to remain as objective as you possibly can all the way through the process from the time that we start talking until the time an offer comes in until the time you hand over the keys is when you bought the home that you're in now it was a house you moved into it you turned it into a home now that you're selling and you're buying another home you need to think of it as just the house again you've basically already moved out so you need to remain as objective as possible my job is to help you do that so that's sort of the framework for the mindset right. for, for selling and moving on. Yeah, emotion becomes a, a challenge actually on the sale side of things, right? Everyone thinks their house is worth, worth way, way more. more. Yeah, yeah, and that's true, and that's true. So it's, if you can get the emotion out of it or get it in check before you start, then you can always sort of use that as a touchstone. You can come back to it and you can say, well, remember that first meeting we had? We agreed that this was the goal and this was the timeline. And so you said then that as difficult as you knew it was going to be, you would always sort of come back and remember, okay, I have a goal in mind, let's not make it emotional. So if you have the conversation up front, then you can always bring them back to that conversation when things do get pretty thick, and they do get pretty thick for people. So that's sort of that framework, that, that mindset for it. The other piece of advice I give them is get a backup plan. And they usually say, what do you mean a backup plan? And I say, well, you've invited me into your home and you are asking me to make you homeless and there's a very good chance that I'm going to do that. Otherwise, you wouldn't have invited me into your home. <laughs> so, so, but what do you mean about the homeless thing? Because I must catch them off guard. Completely off guard. But that's effectively what they've asked me to do. They've asked me to make them homeless. They believe in the market, I mean, depending on which market you're in, it's a different set of challenges. This year, the challenge has been getting the home sold while still having them have the ability to find the home that they want. And so it's always a challenge for us as realtors, I think, to keep both balls in the air and get one home sold and the other one under contract and moving in without one or either deal crashing or them winding up homeless. But the reality of it is they can't move on until their home is sold. So when you talk about a competing set of priorities, 1A and 1B, 1A has to be the sale of the home. Right. That's where the down payment is coming from Typically. nine times out of ten. Exactly. So even though they want to move, even though they've declared their intention to move and they've got a list of homes they've favorited on Realtor.ca, there's no point even looking at 1B until you have 1A happening. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's all about timing. But the advice that I give with that timing is, what are you going to do if I make you homeless. And, then, and that's, it's, it's a real, it's meant to, to lighten the air, but at the same time, be a real gut check in that, holy crap, we're really doing this. That's right. And it might sell faster than you think. Well, my goal is to get it sold in 30 days because yeah. typically speaking, if you go back through what goes on in our marketplace, the homes that are well-priced, and by well-priced, I mean still fair market, they're not being given away, that offer exceptional value those typically sell in about 30 days. They don't wait 46 or 52 or 54, whatever the stated average is for the month. It's about 30 days. So everything is based around that 30-day model. So 
when you're homeless in 30 days. <laughs> There's a bit of a time what, crunch. What are you going to do? And so then we start exploring, well, what are we going to do? Yeah. Are we going to find a month-to-month rental? Is it summertime? I've had two clients this year who successfully have had us have their home hit the market as they were leaving for vacation, and then we got it under contract while they were gone to minimize impact on life with kids and pets and showings and so on. But the reality is they're coming home to homelessness, in effect. Uh, So they still have to find homes. Now, many of them, many people I work with will have a backup plan because they are tend to be move-up buyers, they're younger people. So whether they'll admit it or not, they still have mom and dad sometimes as a backup. Many of them are well enough along that if their interests are in camping and so on, they often have a holiday trailer. Mm-hmm. Uh, some will actually go on a second vacation. So they'll put their things in storage and go on vacation if they're homeless. Uh, it really depends. But that advice centers around, Jason, you've invited me to, to come to your home and, and you've asked me to make you homeless and that's what I intend to do. So when I do that, what are you going to do? And usually it's that stunned silence like, what are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Which leads to the next question. What makes you so good at making people homeless? Uh, in a word, honesty. Straightforward honesty. Do your homework. Do your preparations, including preparing the client for what's going to happen. Be completely honest with them in terms of what you know and what you don't know, what can happen and what may not happen, and then let the client decide how they want to proceed. Yeah. And if you do that every single time, you will be successful, you being the client, the way you needed to be successful, yeah. whether it's becoming homeless and you didn't know you wanted to be homeless, <laughs> or as more often is the case is despite the anxiety and stress that comes with selling your home and buying a home, invariably, especially in this market where there's 8,100 units for sale in the census metropolitan area of Edmonton, we find you another home. You just always can't see it. Right. So that's why the 1A, 1B. Right. Okay. So the other group of people that you work a lot with are people who downsize. Mm-hmm. Now you were telling me that you have recently done a seminar on you know, educating people on kind of the, the unknown secrets of downsizing where it totally catches people off guard. What are those two big things? So the, the two big things, the two surprises or secrets as we call them in the seminar um, that we share with people is that there's this belief that they have this belief typically that they're going to sell the big family home, which will be worth lots and lots of money. And they are going to downsize into a much smaller home. So in square footage, they're downsizing. But there's this belief that they're also going to downsize in terms of how much of their net worth is tied up in real estate. They're going to sell a family home with pictures of three decades on the wall of their children and they're going to sell it for 600000 and they're going to buy a nice, tidy little condo for 300000 and they're going to go on lots of vacation and pocket lots of money. That's not the case. I've never experienced that, not one time uh, in my years of doing this. Typically, at best, it's a lateral move. It's certainly a smaller property, but no smaller in terms of the asset that's tied up. Right. Maybe newer, so they don't have that component, but at best, it's usually a lateral move. Generally speaking, it's a smaller property, but it requires kicking in more money to get it. And then it typically has a monthly cost attached in terms of a condo fee. Right. Which sort of leads into the second secret, if you will. We're seeing far fewer folks leaning towards condos like they had planned on doing. They had spent years thinking, okay, 
Martha, we're going to sell the family home. We're going to buy in a condo. And far fewer of them are actually starting to do that. And they're starting to say, well, with all that goes on with condos, with respect to the uncertainty, uh, how the condo corporation has been run in the past, what the condominium contributions might be on a monthly basis, and this notion that there may or may not be some assessments later, far fewer are starting to go to condos. And they're actually starting to shift and say, you know what, why don't we just go back to a small bungalow that's perfect for the two of us, enough room for the kids and grandkids when they come over, and instead of paying monthly condo fees, we'll just hire a yard service, somebody to cut the grass in the summer and move the snow in the wintertime. And generally that's a fraction of the cost of a condo fee. And it'll never go up in terms of a monthly amount because you can just cancel the service. Mm -hmm. uh, and there will never be a special assessment. Right. Although, from my perspective, you know, people go, okay, I'm afraid of a special assessment. But hey, the roofs on houses need to be replaced too. So really, what's the difference? Yeah, and it's true. And that's part of what they need to understand is if you are if you are scared of the special assessment and you are concerned about this volunteer board, if you will, that is the condominium corporation, and you don't like that risk, then you need to be prepared to continue with the risk that is basic home ownership. The furnace can crap out on Christmas Eve, and it's your responsibility. The roof can leak on Easter Sunday dinner, and it's your responsibility. Yeah. And both of those things are guaranteed to happen for that timing, if yeah. it's going to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's just a case of, do you, do you want your money on red or black? <laughs> because, because that's really what it comes down to, is, yeah. is if you own a home, whether it's a condo yeah. or you know a single-family home, they cost money. Yeah. They have monthly costs, and somebody has to pay for it. It's just a case of where I'm just start, we're starting to see that more people seem to be more comfortable with, I think it's control. I think that's really what it comes down to is right. if I buy a small ho a small house and I did my due diligence at that time and I got a home inspection and the roof is in good shape and everything's deemed to be in good shape, yeah. I'm controlling more than if I buy a condo yeah. that has a bunch of strangers running it. They meet once a month. I don't always know what they talk about because I only get my monthly meeting minutes. Mm -hmm. I have no control that way. Right. Especially on timing, like things like repairs, etc. Exactly. They might have a personal cash flow crunch at one point in time or more cash flow than uh, another point of time, and then they can do their repairs accordingly. Yeah. Very good. Any other challenges with downsizing? Big, big one for downsizing for sellers who are downsizing is setting expectations for their homes. We do encounter some folks who 15 years ago, did some pretty pricey renovations in their homes. Redid the kitchens, redid the bathrooms, high, 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 high end stuff. And it looked absolutely stunning 15 years ago. You know, when Hunter Green and Champagne Oak was all the rage, they bought the best Hunter Green and Champagne Oak they could buy. And the sad part is, is it's still practically brand new. Mm -hmm. And they are still very much married to the idea that we just renovated this home, even though that's a relative term and it was 15 years ago, <laughs> but they just renovated the home. Yeah. And what do you mean it's not worth as much as we think that it is? And that if somebody comes in here, they're going to rip it all out. But the reality of it is, is trends change. Um, it's younger buyers that they're targeting, and younger buyers don't want Hunter Green. Yeah. You know. So what do you say to them to get over that hurdle? It just comes back to the honesty thing. It comes back to having an honest conversation and saying, listen, it's, it's fantastic. It was beautiful to you, but just as beautiful as that is to you, understand that the new design trends that you see in show homes is what's beautiful to that buyer. And if you want them to purchase your home, you need to understand that what you love isn't what they love. Right. So really, the resale market 
you're always going up against whatever is the in thing on the new home side of things, right? If everyone's got pedestal stinks in a, in a new home, you better be planning on having either an upgrade or the person who's buying it's going to want that same or similar upgrade. You're right. You you basically are going against up against the trends at all times. And that's where the whole value conversation comes in because, <clears throat> as you know, on your side of the equation, so many of our clients, their first restriction on what they can purchase is their budget. Very few clients come to you or to I with... I get to pick my neighborhood and my size and so on first. And oh, by the way, here's my budget. Usually it's the other way around. Here's my budget and I'd like to have all of these things. Which of them can I actually get? (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's where it makes it a little bit easier to sell those homes for those folks that have the Hunter Green and Champagne Oak is when we're working with the buyers for their homes. We have to remind them that, okay, I know you don't like Hunter Green and Champagne Oak, but to get you the espresso cabinets and the brand new granite countertops, you have to sacrifice, maybe it's location, maybe it's square footage, but you said you didn't want to sacrifice location and square footage. This home that has the Hunter Green and Champagne Oak, it may not be as sexy, has the square footage, and has the location you can't replace, and your budget dictates that. Right. Which one, which one do you want? Right, right, right. And when you frame it that way, often if it's, if it's got exceptional value, They'll take the hunter green over the espresso. Right. And then the seller of that house, I mean, is it worth them or is it worth it for them to upgrade? Never. Never. Why never. is that? Almost never. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Because if they take out the hunter green yeah. and they take out the champagne oak and they visit 15 or 50 show homes and they are certain that is the style of cabinet. I want to get a espresso stained maple cabinet that's shaker style. And I'm going to get an ivory colored countertop that's granite. And I'm going to get a gun barrel oak floor. Because that's what I saw on every damn show home I went into today. So they spend fifteen or 20000 and they make that kitchen look exactly like that show home. And that front entry look exactly like that show home. The one, the buyer for that home, wants a white kitchen every single time. <laughs> or they want it, but they want the brand new house. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that's right. the problem. So. I say almost never because you are almost always better off to reset your expectations of what the value of your home is, the market value of your home is, and sell it for that rather than trying to spend your way into the next bracket by guessing at what the buyer wants for paint colors, flooring choices, cabinet choices. Right. I mean, at that point, you're sinking money and maybe more importantly, sinking time into a potentially a losing proposition anyways, right? Especially in this market, it's more than likely a losing proposition because, you know, in 2006, 2007, I could counsel clients to go ahead and put in hardwood. didn't matter what damn color it was. Put in hardwood and granite because not many people had granite and hardwood at 2006. And you would sell yours for more money. That was a ha- that was what would happen. You would sell for more money. Well, now granite and hardwood and homes is like roaming up windows and cars. I mean, yeah. everybody has power windows now, and every home pretty much should have hardwood and granite from a buyer's perspective. And so if you don't have it and you go and put it in, you're not selling for more money. You're just getting it sold. Right. It makes the difference between selling and not. Yeah. Which lower your price, you're going to sell it anyways. Which lowering your price, you're going to sell it anyways. Yeah. How much do you focus on St. Albert versus Edmonton as a whole for your the market that you go after? 
So five years ago, I set a goal for my business that in 10 years time, so five years from now, I would be serving or doing 60% of my business in St. Albert. So I never set out to ever do 100% of my business in St. Albert. I think that St. Albert is too small a community in terms of the number of transactions. Uh, it is saturated with some very high level and very good, very experienced agents, many of whom are in my office. And to try and make a really good living and to create a very successful business in a population of 63,000 is really not realistic. Mm -hmm. But to have the majority of your business come from that marketplace and then still serve all of the surrounding communities uh, effectively is probably a more uh, a better approach. And that's kind of been my approach. Right, okay. Uh, how is the market in St. Albert different than say, uh, you know, Edmonton proper? Uh, there are, from, from a very high level, they're very similar. Um, they follow the same trends, um, the same property types. Those are all the same. At a lower level, we tend to deal with uh, a slightly higher average um, sale price, mm -hmm. uh, slightly lower average days on market than the city of Edmonton. We have to overcome a lot of challenges in St. Albert with respect to both history and misunderstanding. Everybody, what we often hear about people coming to St. Albert or wanting to move to St. Albert or not moving to St. Albert is, I would never move to St. Albert, the taxes are too high. Right. You hear that all of the time. Yeah. And it's, it's a fact, the taxes are absolutely higher in St. Albert than anywhere else. But there's never ever understanding as to, number one, why they're higher, and they're only marginally higher, and then what you actually get for those higher taxes. As an example, and we use this to educate clients coming to St. Albert, is we have 86 kilometers of maintained trail along the river and in, in the system here in St. Albert. So if you're a runner like I am and it's minus 25 in January, you can actually go outside and run on a clear trail. Things like that don't matter to everybody, but it has to be paid for somehow. The outdoor rinks in St. Albert are cleared with the Zamboni. May or may not matter to you, but you have somebody has to pay for that. And so those are, if those are things that matter to you, no potholes, if that's something that matters to you, and I sound like an advocate for the city of St. Albert, <laughs> really not. These are just things I've come to learn that, that yeah. you know, the average, I, I worked with economic development here in St. Albert, and the average, when you look at all of the factors for annual costs, it's about three to $500 a year per household. That's the real average difference between St. Albert and Edmonton. Right. And so for me, if I'm paying an extra 500 bucks a year to be in St. Albert, and I'm getting things that I do use, like the outdoor trail system. I don't use the outdoor rinks, but hey, I don't mind offsetting those costs for all the kids that do. If those things matter to you, and they do matter to me, 500 bucks is chump change for something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. But that's, that's one of those things that we deal with all the time, is those types of differences. Supply differences is a big, big one. You know, if we've got, at the end of July, we were averaging approximately 8,100 total units available for sale in the census metropolitan area of Edmonton. If month over month over the busy months, let's say May to July, it's around 8,000, we have about 450 units in St. Albert. So we've got far, far less inventory to work with mm -hmm. than obviously the census metropolitan area of Edmonton. So that creates its own challenges. Right, okay. And how do you overcome that sort of a challenge? Wait, watch and wait and really leverage the resources that I have being with Remax Professionals here in St. Albert. We average approximately 60% of the market share and we have weekly meetings on Mondays and Fridays where we tour 
all of the new listings that are coming on the system through our office. And so that gives our both our sellers, but certainly the buyers with whom we're working, a distinct advantage in that if we've already seen everything that's on the market, and now my buying clients are in a holding pattern waiting for the right one to come on the system, there is a very good chance that I'm going to see it first on either a Monday or a Friday mm -hmm. uh, before it even hits the system just because of how our office promotes properties for our sellers. Right. And when you say the system, you mean the MLS, the MLS system, system, both the one internal to realtors and then ultimately the one that the public would see if they went to realtor.ca. Absolutely. And that's an important distinction because realtors see it more or less as soon as I see it. So it's not like I have an inside scoop in that regard. Where it's more of a perceived inside scoop is realtor.ca is managed by the Canadian Real Estate Association and all of their IT guys and gals. And even though listings typically hit the system more or less right away, right away being a relative term, along with pictures, the official line from CREA is 24 to 48 hours. So depending on what the system's doing, if you're a buyer waiting for a home and you've had to wait 12, 18 or 24 hours to see it pop up on realtor.ca versus you're working with me and I was through it this morning and I'm seeing, I'm showing it to you this afternoon, that's a distinct advantage. Yeah, huge advantage, actually. Huge advantage, yeah. Okay, Craig, I always like asking realtors this question because it really gives good insight into what people should be looking for in when they're hiring a professional to help them either buy or sell a house. So let's say you know, you've know you got a close family member or your best friend. They are moving across the country, so obviously you can't help them. But you can help them find an agent in that city. How would you go about finding the agent that's going to help that person? What would you look for? Well, if they're a past client, I'll have a pretty good understanding of, of what made us click together in our relationship. So the things, I mean, you understand the relationships that you have with your clients. And so you know, or you think you know, what your client liked about you, what they appreciated most about your approach. Was it your sense of humor? Was it your attention to detail? Was it all of those things? You have a pretty good understanding of, of what they like about you. And so the first thing I do is make sure I'm right about the things I think they liked about my approach and endeavor then to find that person out east if that's where they're going or out west if that's where they're going. And so what I'll begin with is literally calling other agents. So if I don't already know somebody, I will start calling other agents and I will literally interview those agents in the same way that I interviewed my client to find out how that person is. And if they're a complete stick in the mud or we just don't jive on the phone, then there's no way in hell I'm referring my clients to that person. And once I find somebody I can have a, a light conversation with, but who actually remains professional on the phone and feels like a good fit, I'll take a couple of those back to my client and I'll say, here's what I learned about these people. Here's what I learned about them online and through their social media channels and, and reading through their, you know, their posts and so on. And it was consistent with what I believed and the impression I formed when I spoke to them for half an hour. And, and so here's what I think you can expect. Do you want me to have that person contact you? And invariably, I think probably what I'm trying to find is, is me there. I've had a great number of my clients who, once their transactions have been successful and we have that strong relationship, have literally said, can we fly you to wherever we're going <laughs> and have you represent us? And I said, you can, but it absolutely would not be in your best interest. I don't know that market. I don't know those people. I don't have those relationships. What helps me be successful in this market, besides understanding the market, is also understanding the professionals in the market. I've worked with a great number of them. Uh, we all have reputations. 
when they say your reputation precedes you, it absolutely does. And so I have agents I deal with on a regular basis. I may, ne- I may have heard your name a hundred times. I may even met you a hundred times. We've never actually dealt with you. What I know about you will set the stage for how I prepare my client for the negotiations that we're going to enter into with you and your client because of the reputation. And so if you want to fly me to Ottawa to help you, I don't have any of those reputations. I don't have any of those preconceived notions. I don't have any understanding of who I might encounter, who I might be working with, what those neighborhoods are like. So as much as I'd love to take the trip to Ottawa, I can't. Right. But you get a sense of the the realtor's integrity and the, uh, professionalism, etc., from doing the interviews and, and doing the background research on them. Yeah, as much as you possibly can. The other piece of it that we haven't really talked about that that is incredibly valuable for my clients is, uh, and every brand I'm sure has, well, I know many of the major brands in real estate have it, but my brand in particular, Remax, has a very strong network of referral partners that we build up through going through conferences and professional development events and so on. So I'm fortunate in that over the last five years, I've cultivated some really strong relationships in pretty much every major center in this country. They're definitely not all Remax agents. I've got referral partners in Grand Prairie and Red Deer and so on who are not Remax agents. They're people I've met through, again, other industry events. And we just hit it off as, as having sort of similar beliefs about how the industry should work and how clients are always first and foremost what's supposed to happen in this business and through that then sort of gain the trust of each other to begin sending clients and of course once you begin sending clients and they report back to you and say oh so awesome that you sent me to Jeannie in Grand Prairie she is fantastic I can't believe you sent me to somebody at Royal LePage she was amazing it was just like working with you except she's a she and you're a he you know that's, <laughs> that's what you want to hear right right yeah <laughs> so okay good stuff are there any other last thoughts or comments that you'd like to to add to this? If you're a consumer and you're contemplating buying or selling real estate, don't be afraid to go for a coffee. What do you mean by that? If you've got an agent you want to work with, maybe you don't have an agent you want to work with, but you met one at an open house, or you have a favorite agent, go for a coffee. Always go for a coffee first. I meet more people, I get more phone calls and more web inquiries can we go look at can we go see can you come to my house and talk to me about selling and my first conversation when i get them on the phone always is let's go for coffee first a 30 minute or 45 minute coffee to find out who and how you are to find out who and how i am can go a long long way to a really successful transaction going forward or not if you find out, actually, we're oil and water. I could never properly represent you, or you think I'm a jerk, guess what? It was a 45-minute coffee, it was a handshake, it was some light conversation, and move on, rather than getting trapped in a buyer's brokerage agreement or a listing contract with somebody you can't stand. Go for coffee. If the agent doesn't ask to go for coffee, ask the agent if they'll go for a coffee. Hey, can we go for a coffee? I wanna interview you. Great, do it, you should. You should do three of them. That would be my advice. That is awesome advice. Craig, thanks very much for your time. Keep rocking your uh, year. Absolutely well. Thank you, Jason.